Hello and welcome once again after an interminably long wait back to Radio Moorpark with me, Colm, with Rose Fortune, as ever. And today we are joined by the wonderful, the talented, the vivacious and the intelligent Ashling Lynch. Hello, it is wonderful to be here. Although I, this is one of the very few Pratchett books I have read, it is very cool to be here and talking about it because it's a very cool book. We, we got Ashley in to jazz up the podcast to make up for our, uh, the long wait between the, this episode and the last one. Uh, no, we got Ashley in because this was the first uh, uh, Discworld book you read, wasn't it? It was the third. I read The Hogfather and the Color of Magic a very long time oh, ago. Okay. Like a very, very long time ago. Yeah. So this was the first one I had read in a number of years. And it was the first one that wasn't as kind of... Like it was a very grown... It was more grown up, I think, from the other ones, really. Yeah. Um, well, then again, I was I was a lot younger when I read them, so cute <laughs> viewpoint there. Yeah, I think uh, I think it'll make for an interesting view because the, the last guest we had on was uh, Steve Hill, who's like obviously like a really dedicated oh, yeah, man yeah, like yeah. the two of us. I so have nothing on him. Be interesting to see a kind of a different viewpoint on it. Um, yeah, the real reason there was such a long wait it was a, tema- a thematic choice because you know time moves very slowly in Jelly Baby. There's mm-hmm. very few changes. This is true, yes. So we said, oh, we'll wait really a really long time before doing our next podcast to simulate that effect. We'll actually and have also, like the flaring off of a pyramid yeah. at the end of this episode. Yeah. So our roll flaring off of a pyramid. <laughs> and also I couldn't find my copy of the book, that delayed us. Um, right, so before we launch into our analysis, I will uh, give you a quick summary of the plot in a nutshell, which Rose has been so good as to write up. Tepic is the son of a god king in a place called the Jelly Baby. He leaves for a few years to get a good education in Ankh-Morpork as an assassin, but on the night of his final exam, his father passes away. He goes home to be the new king. Unfortunately, his chief advisor, Dios, has a very different idea as to what a king should, as to what kind of a king he should be, and he, he is often somehow overruled. This culminates in the king ordering a handmaiden named Tracy uh, to be executed, while Tepic feels quite strongly that she should live. He rescues her, and they run away on a camel named You Bastard. Per Dios's instructions, a pyramid is being constructed for Tepic's father. It's a pyramid the scope of which has never been seen before, and it's about to warp time and space with all of its temporal energy. It's very quantum. Before the pyramid can be capped, the energy bursts forth and causes all sorts of side effects. The gods arrive on the disc, the, king long buried, uh, the king's long buried wake up from the dead. As soon as Tepic and Tracy leave the jelly baby, they, lo- uh, they lose it and can't find their way back. This is also quantum. Under the proper motivation, being thirsty, you bastard finds his way back to the Jelly Baby. The city is in a hell of a state, and it's all down to the Mega Pyramid, which has still not been capped. Tepic utilizes his assassin training to scale the pyramid with the help of his deceased extended family. He manages to get the pyramid capped, and the gods and kings disappear. It emerges that Tracy, the handmaiden, the handmaiden was actually the old king's illegitimate daughter, and so she takes over the throne. Tepic rides off into the sunset nearly, but is halted by Tracy... It's indeterminate what resolution they reach. And Dios, the advisor, is transported back in time to the first ruler, thus starting the whole pyramids process all over again in something of a bootstrap bootstrap paradox. Um, it's timely enough Doctor Who touched on recently. Yes, it did, actually. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I should make recent references. I hope for this podcast to last as long as the uh, Kingdom of the Jelly Baby, 7,000 years. Okay. So, you know, All when right. people are listening to this 7,000 years later, uh-huh. they won't get my like references to recently. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so so that was Pyramids. So, um, 
I suppose I'll, I'll start with Ashing. When you, when you read this, like uh, you said, it was the first Discord book you read in a long time. What was it that made you pick a, that one, this one in particular? Um, well, it was really random because I actually just picked this up in a random bookshop in Mullingar. They had like three Pratchett books there. One of them, I think, was uh, The Weird Sisters. Mm-hmm. And then I can't remember what the other one was. But um, this one was the one that kind of just looked a little more different. Also, I didn't really know too much about outside of Ankh Pork or Death's Lair. Yeah. Or uh, Death's Scene, I suppose. I should, I don't know. Don't really know how you'd phrase that. It's domain. Domain. Yeah. Domain. Thank you. Um, but yes, and yeah, it was the one. That was the of appeal. Yeah, it was like my first kind of view outside of Ankh Pork because mm-hmm. I had spent a lot of time there, and um, you know, I, it, it was interesting. I just wanted to kind of see more of the disc world, I guess. Yeah. And uh, the land of the gel is actually just really cool, and I, I kind of just picked it up on a whim and really loved it in the end um his style his style of writing is something i always forget that i love Mm -hmm. just kind of getting back into it now um oh yeah the gods collection i've never read any of the gods collection as well so that was that was good um just the the parodies of ancient cultures yeah it's 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 really really good um and yeah that's that's pretty much it i just really liked it um um also also the camel was probably my favorite character (laughs) so um yeah, I don't think I'll ever be able to look at a camel the same way again, even though I've never actually seen one in the flesh. No, I definitely haven't seen one in the flesh. But uh, you can be assured that I'll be very wary yeah, once I, I do actually see one. Staring at one lensing, you would see the cogs in their head twirling yeah, with yeah. mathematical effort. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be, you know, keeping my distance. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like, like Pratchett has uh, like permanently altered a lot of people's perception of animals you know we all think camels are mathematical geniuses now yeah we all kind of have a soft spot in our hearts for orangutans that's <laughs> true yeah oh yeah. Well, yeah door knockers as well yeah. M- most most random mundane things i think yeah, yeah um but that was his gift i guess he just kind of that's the gift with a lot of fantasy writers though they like they, they can take the normal and make it amazing mm-hmm. um but it, yeah so that, that's that's my that's my approach to the camel anyway. That mm-hmm. camel was my favorite character, so well, that was it. <laughs> it's, it's interesting what you say about him taking the normal and making it amazing because that's something me and Rose have touched on a lot in earlier episodes. Is how he can make the the mundane really fantastic. Mm-hmm. But it's I, I can't call this a first, but I feel like in this this book the premise of it is almost the opposite. It's taking like what seems this you know really fantastic thing like you know young prince goes off to become an assassin and then goes back to rule the 7,000-year-old kingdom. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's like ancient Egypt, that, you know, a, a, mm. a culture that holds fascination for so many and makes it really mundane. Like, you know, yeah. makes it full of uh, dry, dull routine and kind of uh, very, like, salt-of-the-earth, recognisable char- uh, character archetypes. Um, in a way that's... I, and, like, even the, the assassins, the assassins uh, business, it's, like, part kind of... Uh, Tom Brown's school days, English private school, mm. and part uh, like driving test with the the with test the at the end, at the yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, actually, well, I forget Pratchett said that was I think his favorite scene ever to write because it was the only scene he ever wrote that he didn't know what was going to happen, and he just was sort of like, oh, really? like well, what? yeah, it's very ambiguous when he actually gets to the target um, yeah. in the exam, and you know, like that whole that whole scene where you know it's revealed and you know mm-hmm. will he or won't he and you know you, you can imagine if somebody's writing that it's like well he's the protagonist 
protagonist is he actually gonna kill someone yeah you know like maybe he should and uh, yeah that, that, that's that's interesting to hear now that he thought that yeah yeah I feel so. that when you're reading it as well because it's just very up in the air mm-hmm. and um it's, it's i think it's nice to have a really frantic uh, pace of that like you know that exam test just completely contrasts with how slow and stifled and stagnant things are in jelly baby but um yeah this one where is one where it takes what's like you know one of the most kind of fantastic and so i suppose like uh almost otherworldly or certainly you know like fantasy type uh um settings and you know premises and just makes it really mundane but not boring like like kind of you know recognizable and uh like even even the way he goes on about how camels their mathematical abilities like he makes it seem like the most natural thing in the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like it's not like oh these camels are magically instilled with this. It's like no, of course camels would you know they're like this because they've got to count grains of sound and you know to make these calculations and have this digestive system and he, you know he just makes that seem really uh, straightforward. I do. I think I think one thing that accentuates that feature of his writing mm-hmm. is is the footnotes. The foot like that's one thing that yeah. I just never like because because it's rare that I'd come across. I think one of the only other writer I've seen do that is Robert Rankin. Um, yeah. And no, but Pratchett kind of takes it to another level. And I think that it's just so like, obviously everyone has backup for their worlds. You know, you get all the indexes at the back of the, of the, mm-hmm. uh, the game of Thrones books and all and the Tolkien books. And then, you know, Pratchett has footnotes, which I think is actually a much better way of that. Cause it just, you know, like it, as if you're reading a journal or an article, you know, and somebody has a reference, like, oh yeah, by the way, yeah, it's just you know, you know, fact of life, yeah, footnote right there, you know, what was? Yeah, it's really engrossing. Yeah, no, it is engrossing. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's a... on the camel as well. I thought it was amazing that he set up from the very beginning this creature that is the best mathematician in the entire universe, mm. and they never really use that. Like they, he keeps referencing it, mm-hmm. and it only comes up in one or two really weird ways, and then it's. Yeah, how you can aim is spit and so forth. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of what gets them to to je- the jelly baby at the end, but um, yeah, it's it's sort of like uh, it, it is the thing where you're waiting for the payoff and kind yeah. of wondering where it's going to come. Is, uh, is you bastard going to save the day? Yeah. Mm. No, he's going to lie down. <laughs> Camels are more important than pyramids. Yeah, that's true. Important like you were saying, it's like he he's, he gets them there, you know, but he's thirsty that's why yeah. like, that was his only motivation really like what there's trouble no i'm thirsty let's just go here <laughs> um so rose reading this in in sequence i suppose for the first time having read the previous what is it what are we on now the just the seventh book the eighth book seventh i think yeah it's not too important anyway the, the point is you've read all the ones <laughs> prior to this in, yes. in order what what like what's to do for you reading it like that uh, i love know? this book yeah i love this book so much um i think you can really see the evolution of Pratchett's writing style mm-hmm. when you read it from first, second, third. Yeah, yeah. Um, his jokes are so well cultivated in this. There's there's no wasted lines anywhere. There's, I was saying, I've been reading this in an EPUB and there's a little app where you can make notes and I literally just went through it and added notes all over the place with little smiley faces to remind myself how good his jokes are. So that I can go <laughs> back to them. And there's so many. There are there are quite and a so lot. So many of them are just pure gold. It's amazing the way he puts together the story, the great characters, and it's you know it's his once-off novels as well. Yeah. So this doesn't really tie in anywhere. Yeah. In and fact, it, uh, it's 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 one of the ones along with Small Gods that really trust the whole chronology and settings utterly out of whack. Yeah, um, that's because true. Because I think Zeno and Abid 
show up again in Small Gods, but then there's other stuff that implies Small Gods is 200 years before the rest of it. Yeah. But when Tepix and Ankh-Morpork, it's kind of implied to be like the, the present. But uh, hmm. yeah, yeah, it's um, like it, the, it is a thing you become more conscious of having read so many of the others where you're re- like reading later ones in the Garrett series or the Witches series and the characters are so familiar to you, you know, and so much of their kind of appeal rests on you knowing them. Yeah. And then, like, you know, kind of reacting in certain ways because you're like, oh, I, I can't believe this character is doing that. And this one, you never really meet any of them again, except for Zeno in a bit. And he just, like, captures them so well. Like, I was thinking even um, the thumbnail descriptions of, like, your man Cheese Rice's face being, like, one giant freckle. Um, <laughs> and Lady Tamalia and the Assassin's Guild about, like, having that, what, that kind of beauty that uh, is a, what is it, like, it's a constructed kind of beauty that takes, you know, three hours work in the morning and mm. she's going to do, uh, like, grown of corsets as she moves and yeah these like these little descriptions that he just captures these characters that pop up and disappear oh i love that bit about um chitter just like you know strolling through life as if everything was like you know arranged for him in advance and he just knew things would turn out okay Mm. um actually one of my little bookmarks was on ibit Mm -hmm. one of my favorite jokes in the entire book ibit was a well-known Expert on everything. Yeah, <laughs> you think you know everything a bit, and then, then the very next page, he has uh, he has the point about when the, the gods come back to the jelly baby, and he says, uh, "The people of the jelly baby, something to this effect, have been like believing for gods for the entire year, uh, for thousands of years. Now they were all here. They had, as it were, the complete set." <laughs> yeah. like, so you're getting like a kind of like. Uh, you know, and what's essentially an academic pun followed by an ancient mythology pun. Which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I th- he he does that very well in his writing. I remember, yeah. I, I do remember when I was when I was reading this, just kind of, and he does it in in Mord as well because I read Mord after this. Mm-hmm. Um, that he's just so good at the just the constant flow of just link jokes and also linking with the world and just also just making you smile on every page. Like I just remember kind of new like starting new chapters and just getting really happy because it was just going to be a whole other section of just happy reading really um and no yeah the one of my favorite uh character dialogues in this was that really was hilarious was um to clusp to clusp his sure his son <laughs> to clusp to a and to clusp to yeah. b yeah. and one of them is uh one of them is a, an accountant and the other one is a cosmic engineer <laughs> and they're just constantly clashing over the building of the pyramids because they have such different ideas whereas you know the accountant is like structured and everything needs to be you know yeah you know he's he's really concerned about their their economic position and then you know everything with the other guys oh it's probably quantum <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but everything's quantum. everything is quantum <laughs> everything is quantum um, but yeah, so that, that's what made me. Happy. Yeah, I think two two B the architect used to um like the the uh manager, I'm like the trouble with you is you know the cost of everything and the value of nothing and the other guy survives. Well, the trouble with you is you don't. That was actually one of my favorite ones as well. Yeah, it was good. When I was reading those lines, of the first couple of lines of dialogue I read between between the two of them, because of the way that because of the way the font was, I was reading it as like. Ilha and Ilb. I've seen that at first as well. A few paragraphs in, I suddenly doubled over laughing when I finally clicked that there's yeah, well, no way Yeah, well, when they call each other, it has it <laughs> yeah. phonetically, right? Like yeah. it has no, yeah, yeah, A-Y no, and B. Oh, no. It was brilliant. And then I clicked it from reading it eventually. But then somewhere later, one of them actually calls the other one 2A. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's obviously their name. 
because <laughs> everybody's named after their father. Mm. And so obviously if there's twins and there's two sons, then sure, the logical thing to do, I guess, would be to call them 2A and 2B. Yeah. You have to wonder if that never came up before. Would, would they not get named after their grandfather it, um, or something? Or like George Foreman, all his children are called George. Are they? I think so, even the really? girls. Oh no. I could, uh, I, I could be wrong now, I never checked out and I feel like that's one of those things that, you know, someone would just say as a joke and then it would somehow become like, <laughs> kind of, you know, tr- like, yeah, yeah, internet rumor mill, it's become the accepted truth, but, yeah. you know, I, I have heard it's, like said, like it's the truth. Yeah, it's definitely a dying fashion, I think, though. People yeah. are just, you know, it just gets confusing. There's yeah, too many same names. So they should all be George A, George B, George C and George D. Really? <laughs> Mm. If I mean, if they want to keep everything in order to avoid George, confusion. to avoid, confusion. <laughs> <laughs> we'll send George Foreman a copy of Pyramids. And <laughs> what do you think of it? <laughs> Please don't fry it or grill it. Your thoughts, George. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, go slightly off topic. I'm reading the fight by Norman Mailer at the moment about the Ali Foreman fight and the uh, Rumble in the Jungle. It's it's really just jarring when. Like my whole conception of Foreman is just smiling guys selling grills and <laughs> yeah. Norman Mailer's talking about him like, you know, like annihilating people in two rounds and how he, he said he wanted to kill a man in the ring and, you know, he's just like vicious. <laughs> it's like joking about him here, kind of, uh, this seems very strange. That is really bizarre, actually. <laughs> I think I actually divided him into two people in my head. Yeah, like uh, Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Speaking of uh, dividing it to two people, and we were just talking about like task up uh, one two or uh, two A and two B. Mm-hmm. Um, back to pyramids. Uh, one one thing that jumped out at me, having you know reading an order from last year, was the fact that he divides it into four books, which he like he never normally does that. He never has yeah, any chapter. Yeah. Never normally has any chapter breaks. Mm-hmm. One of them is a nice Gene Wolfe pun, the Book of the New Sun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, how did you guys find that? Um, um, like I suppose it wouldn't stick out as much to you, Ashley, because you haven't no, read as much other stuff. But Rose, did you like? Um, did it just? Well, I suppose alter it for you in any way? It didn't really. No. Um, I think maybe. I think I probably like it as as a way to break things up because mm-hmm. you can just you know close the book over here. Yeah. And it's a good ending point. Yeah. I I usually prefer when a book has chapters and you can get to the end of the chapter and then go to bed. Whereas with Terry Pratchett, there's there's never yeah, a break. Yeah. You just have to keep reading, keep reading until eventually you have to say no. I will fall asleep on this Terry Pratchett novel <laughs> if I don't go to bed right now. So I just have to be all covered in drool when you wake go. Yeah, and you can't do that to a Terry Pratchett novel. That's really my main concern there. <laughs> so it was nice like that. It's nice to have um, breaks. Yeah, I, I I think it's sort of um, it, it's hard to tell to be honest because but it feels like it helps with the the structure. Like you know the the first book is essentially about Tepic in Ankh-Morpork and kind of you know setting you up I mean it's it's wonderfully paced at start but switching between I said it before about the contrast of pace between Ankh-Morpork and the Jelly Baby but the going back and forth between like Tepic in the present his father in the present and Tepic in the past like you know it's just wonderfully done like really mm, yeah. uh, great way of getting across and the second book is Tepic back in Jelly Baby third book is Tepic and Tracy out of the Jelly Baby and the fourth book he's back in there again you know mm. so it I, I, it's hard to tell, like, you know, whether the uh, four books thing was just, like, you know, a pony like to do, like the, you know, the way it's, uh, what is it, like, you know, the book of going forth and the book of 100 and things, 101 things a boy can do, or oh, whether God, he yeah. did do it as a structuring device, because it feels like um, Pyramids is, uh, like, probably the best structured of the Discord books we've read so far in this, you know? Yeah. Um, 
like some more to an equal right spring to mind where the end feels you know really rushed um weird sisters not so much but i i'm trying to think i'm, I'm sure there, there were some like kind of odd like uh jarring bits in there whereas this feels perfectly paced um like there's i think as you said earlier there's not a wasted line in it yeah um, there's really not yeah i'd have to agree with you i think um reading this first and then moving on to more it was actually a little a little difficult <laughs> just, <laughs> just structure wise still loved reading it wouldn't put it down but mm-hmm. like it was kind of the structure did kind of throw me just the endless kind of you know chapterless well almost chapterless but like yeah um but he he makes it really easy like he like he it's i think structure wise it just kind of seems like i haven't seen a new chapter page in a while like, what's what's going on <laughs> yeah normally <laughs> about 50 pages page. here because <laughs> <laughs> like have i eaten yet no um no yeah yeah i i think that's the structure yeah it doesn't really apply to me but i liked it yeah it was good cool. I think I think when he was asked about it, like before how he doesn't use chapter breaks, he said like life isn't divided up into chapters. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> he never fell into the habit, but uh, oh. he's yeah. I, I I don't know. That's that's almost an almost like philosophical debate as to whether life's to be uh, <laughs> divided up into chapters or not. I think yes. it's a philosophical debate whether books should reflect life in their structure. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm sure we're really book... going deep. Now. Yeah, yeah, never mind. <laughs> but I mean, sure, philosophically, books should reflect life in the telling and in the story and the narrative but really in the chapter format well you have something like a Ulysses where it goes into the uh, stream of consciousness so yeah, and it's, it's kind of really uh, reflecting like lived experience but yeah it, it, it's a tall order to expect every book to be like that <laughs> I True. I uh, while I love Pratchett I wouldn't exactly you know uh, show any contempt for any writer who resorted to using chapters no you're not living in a real world man <laughs> Also, when you think about it, like this, this book is very far from our world. <laughs> like already, it's it's in another world actually. So I I don't know if is that it a... though? Is it? <laughs> I don't know because because pyramids, the jelly baby situation, albeit greatly magnified, feels very like Ireland. Like you know, Dios could be Devil Era. Like, oh, he could in this state of cultural stasis. Like you know, like m- like surrounded by all these countries. That are much more, you know, uh, seemingly much more modern, mm-hmm. just in this kind of, uh, yeah, state of state of like cultural stagnation and mm-hmm. e- economic stagnation as well mm. for decades. Um, in this effort to kind of preserve a like a, um, a kind of pristine rose tinted past, like view of the country or its tradition. Like I think there was some, I can't remember whether it was like Archbishop McQuaid or some other church figure said. The best thing we could do for Ireland is to drag it out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> away from the pernicious influence of Britain and America. That's um, definitely got some Dios. In yeah, there. and I definitely feel like that's what Dios would do with oh, uh, yeah, the Jelly Baby if he could. In fact, uh, like, uh, like he uh, isn't there towards the end. He doesn't want it to get back to um, when you're going to Captain Pyramid and get it back into the, uh, in sync with the rest of the world. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to, even though he's sort of upset with the gods being there. He, he kind of likes this state of splendid isolation they're in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that really jumped out at me, the kind of, like, that uh, that uh, cultural stasis element to it um, seeming I suppose, quite relatable. I, I like how you kind of brought it into Ireland as mm. well and how it's kind of reflected that way, I suppose. But at, a, at a certain point in Ireland now, but now I suppose it'd be more, like, if you wanted to put a more modern reflection on it, it'd be more like rural Ireland. Yeah. Know? middle of nowhere Ireland <laughs> it's trying to catch up with the rest of the cities but um you know it's 
I think one of the, oh, what was it? One of my favorite bits was at the end when Tracy is in charge and she's trying to bring in plumbing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of, it's over everyone's heads. She's like, no, you know what? I've decided. And before she's just, she's just kind of, you know, she, 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 just kind of falls into it and she hasn't really thought about it mm-hmm. and she barely has anything to say about it well she does I suppose but you know you don't really see it until the end mm-hmm. and then it's like you know you know what actually plumbing plumbing is <laughs> I, hear, I hear that's the thing right now <laughs> so um, with, with Tracy the thing that struck me is um, when they get out of the Jelly Baby and Tepic mentions how it's having like an effect on her not being in the kind of reused time of the kingdom and he says so you know back then she never had an original idea in her life now she's just so kind of sharp and pragmatic like when she just says that like either everyone's dead and i can't help them or they're alive and i still can't help them because (laughs) what can i do so you know it's fine and he's just kind of struck by that kind of like almost coldly pragmatic uh, element to her Mm -hmm. i was wondering do you think we we see like enough of that like I, i feel like it's more kind of it's more there as the nub of an idea than it is expanded like the bit when she's on a boat with him and chitter and uh, she starts uh, looking at Iran Alphonse's tattoos mm-hmm. uh, oh, which yeah. is yeah, really the, funny like the, is it the, the, the union of the dog or something <laughs> yeah. and yeah and then he's and, like, and he a get, lady should not know such yeah things. he gets really embarrassed but um, <laughs> but they're completely taken aback by her and it's a funny scene but I sort of feel like I don't know I felt like it was kind of overblown when he you know he's like wow can you imagine what she'd do and like more pork and I'm like well it's kind of nice to see her sort of blossoming from this you know state of uh, I, I know like you know vapid uh, one-dimensional thinking she was kind of locked into and mm. the jelly baby but i still didn't feel like oh now she's utterly remarkable you know like <laughs> like we didn't get enough of that yeah. and it kind of made it that at the end like when tepic kind of ducks out and leaves her in charge i mean i don't doubt that like she does admit oh yeah i do you know i i like i like being the queen and it does seem like that is a lovely scene at the end with her and Kumi when he's like, oh, your, your highness will be pleased to do this. It's like, no, not doing that. Coming, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, and that all feels very, um, I suppose it, it feels very convincing and legitimate. But prior to getting that bit, when Tepic just kind of ducks out, it makes his decision seem really questionable because like, even though I read, read it before, I feel like up until that point, you know, I, I didn't feel like I'd seen enough of her to feel like that, like, Oh, I don't know. Do, does she want to be in charge? You know, will she even ca- be capable of, of being in charge? Like, this really seems like just kind of a mm. really selfish evasion of responsibility from Tepic. And it kind of, you know, it ends up fine. Mm. And, and and I'm convinced by the fact that it does. But like, uh, I sort of feel like we don't we don't see enough of her just kind of uh, being, I suppose, of her horizons broadening outside the jelly baby mm. before the end for me like you know yeah. because those scenes with like her and alphonse and the rest are really funny um and just that kind of really plain sprout spokenly pragmatic but kind of unworldly and slightly naive view she has is just like really engaging but uh yeah we kind of i don't know i didn't see enough of it that that was like the one the one bit in this book that i'd be like oh okay that seems pretty dodgy decision on tepic's part that the book isn't really calling him out on. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's two things about that. Um, the first is, how is it that that worked for her? No, shut up. I'm going to do it my way. How did that not occur to Tepic? <laughs> well, she she <laughs> has to put up with Kumi. She has to put up with Kumi. He has to put up with Dios. He does say, uh, yeah. There's there's line here where she yeah. says, um, he says you've got advisors, and she goes, well, I've got Kumi, and he's no good. And he goes, oh, you should be happy. I had Dios, and he was really good. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. So I guess she couldn't yeah. have gotten away with saying that to Dios. It's uh, Kumi. Kumi actually, who we don't really see too much of until the end. No, yeah. no, until the. He, there's a lot more wriggle room with him. I think yeah. and his character. I think the whole business of the pyramids kind of coming down, making the time less stale means that like, um, it's it's. I suppose it's easier to institute change. Mm. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's nice actually. Yeah, time is speeding up mm-hmm. essentially so they can get on with you know progressing as a society and a civilization yeah. getting indoor plumbing that, <laughs> that's true <laughs> that stuff but yeah i guess that explains part two actually which is that the way that it had been earlier with tepic and him regardless of what he was saying the opposite or whatever Diaz wanted being done yeah it almost wouldn't matter who you had in power say yeah. say if you still had Diaz, um and say the pyramid had been capped then it really wouldn't matter uh, mm-hmm. who was in charge or who had the power because really the chief advisor is going to be the one with the power. Yeah, mm. yeah. So maybe yeah. that just ruined it for Tepic. He was like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I'm here. Well, that's both. I, I thought that was one of the main reasons why he left. It's like he'd already spent so much time in another culture and when he went back, he just remembered that, you know, there, there was really just no point in trying to control yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the situation of or the the monarchy or whatever or the, mm-hmm. what was he he's an emperor or a... yeah, king I suppose king. So they, they never actually used the word pharaoh but you yeah. know well, we'll just say king yeah. um, but yeah no uh, I kind of figured that that was why he left and I suppose it's, it's a kind of gives gives a lot more kind of ambiguity to Tracy's situation and mm-hmm. you know it's, it's, I suppose it was a very selfish thing to do but kind of you know it wouldn't matter now that, that, that nobody even questions that there's a woman in charge you know it's yeah. just kind of but yeah. does it matter really because you know who's going to have the real power but then again time is speeding up and yeah, yeah. I, I I suppose a, a thing that it never comes up when he's I, I don't think it comes up when he's making a decision but it's highlighted throughout how he started this cultural hybrid that can't re- like you know he was born in the Jelly Baby but raised in Ankh Park really and he's got too much of Ankh Park in him to really be happy in the Jelly Baby and it feels like I suppose um, by inference although they never say it Tracy has just enough where she was, you know, she is of the Jelly Baby, but she has this little bit of experience outside enough to be open to new ideas mm. so that she can kind of stay there and flourish and bring these new ideas there, but still kind of work within that culture. Whereas he just, I suppose, he couldn't. He felt like, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. Oh, I wanted there's some line where he says, uh, Where I'm from is here, my home is really far away, or something to that effect, mm. like where he kind of divides the, the two. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, before I forget, uh, there's more Gormenghast references in this one, uh, which <laughs> are just, just yeah, are just, just piling up. Yeah, well, the whole the whole setup of like this, you know, re- uh, kingdom or this place just completely dictated by routine, and with these um, like you know old servants and people who kind of masters of ritual, having as much power as the nominal ruler, mm. is very Gormenghast esque. And in Gormenghast, uh, the Earl um, Sepulcrave goes mad and thinks he's an owl. Um, and of course, you have Dios, or not Dios, uh, Tepic's father go mad and thinking he's a seagull. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah um, oh, God, yeah. So, yeah, I just I just had to get that in before I forgot because uh, we were talking in the last episode about um, the difference or the similarities between Lady Felmet and. Um, and I looked up her name between this Sepulcrave's wife and Gormenghast. Uh, the. Titus' mother, yeah, time. yeah, but I can't, she's got a name in it, but I can't remember. Um, it's been a while since I read that. Yeah, but I just just thought I'd uh, shove in another another Gormgast similarity while I noted it. 
Okay, I've just made a note to read <laughs> Gorman Gas. Yep, I'm going to write that down when I get home and have a pen. <laughs> what did, did, did BBC done a, a drama of it? Um, I think oh, that, at the what? start Bloody of... Oh, that's, that's um, the one with that Irish actor. What's his name? Johnny Race. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, he's in it. And Christopher Lee is in it. Um, but I remember watching that when I was young, when it came out, and like just being fascinated. It seemed really unlike anything I'd ever seen. And that's what kind of like years and years later I got the book based on my memories of having seen that goodness I must read those mm. they're, they're, they're kind of they're heavy going they're like really odd bits where it's just like you know the prose is really dense and he just seems to go off and talk about these people that you're like who's this who's what's their relevance to the plot or anyone I care about in this story and sometimes it kind of pays off and then other times it doesn't and you're just left like will we ever see this person again like you'll oh. just, you'll just I kind of feel like that sometimes with Theatre of the Gods which I'm almost finished oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair actually. Yeah, there's there's a lot of theatres. It's fun though. Yeah, it's great fun. Completely off topic anyway. Guys, guys. Okay, we'll never see me going off topic and talking about another book in this podcast. Okay, so that, that never happened. Pyramids versus the phenomenal cartoon that was Mummies Alive. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Let's go. Um, funny, funny link here. Uh, have either of you read the the Johnny Maxwell series that Terry Pratchett wrote, Johnny and the Bomb? Johnny, yeah. The, no. yeah, I always pictured Johnny Maxwell to look like the kid from Mummy's Alive. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I must have been just like watching that cartoon at the same time I first read those books. That was yeah. one of my favorite sequences when they just have this crowd of mummies. It's like, can anybody understand what they're saying? <laughs> yeah, or they've got the big they've got the big line, the line of, of yeah, people just what are saying it. Trying, it's like, what did he say? <laughs> just going through all the different versions yeah. of the dialect. And, oh my god, it was great. That, that whole bit. I remember like reading it for the first time and just being like awesome I, it really hit me rereading it that like the whole twist with Dios is set up really early like literally the first thing, the first section after the initial usual kind of uh, you know this is the disc world um, mm. start of it you know where it describes the turtle is Dios getting up and it alludes to him you know sleeping in a tomb essentially yeah. and you get a lot of those throughout and I feel like I can't remember whether it was a big shock to me when you find is out the line that he has like a uh, Dios did not sleep well. He had had been sleeping well. Sleep was uh, sleep was too much like the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Know? And it's like, oh, he's afraid of death. So he, he didn't have the weirdest bedroom of all time. He just had the weirdest bedroom anyone's ever walking out of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I, I can't remember where that came. It was a big shock. I do remember kind of resounding with me, like just like loving the whole business of that. That he was like seven thousand years old, and mm. there since the start, and in the bootstrap paradox at the end, and just yeah. Um, Dios is one of the best things about this book. He's he's like tremendously complex. Um, like I'm a sucker for good good uses of time travel, and so I just I love the paradox business. I love the idea that he was there from the start, and um, for all of his cultural stasis and kind of naysaying towards all the protagonists, I suppose yeah. he is actually just one of the one. Yeah. he's one of the best features of the book. Yeah, well, he's probably the most sympathetic antagonist we've had in this yeah. book so far. Like, well, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's, sure. he's, he's horrible in some ways. Like the bits where he's going to kill Tepic when it's like, you know, he know he knows it's Tepic and he's like, this assassin has killed the king. <laughs> um, and you know, where he's, he's going to kill Tracy and, uh, even the really low bits for what did the ox, those two, um, peasants are arguing over. Oh yeah. And he just goes, no, he's got to have it because this, this, even though the other guy deserves it. But like, I think there, there is, there's a lot that sort of, I suppose, puts him on a plane that is a lot more sympathetic than the likes of Lord and Lady Felmet or, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think of other um, antagonists here. Certainly the creatures from the dungeon dimensions or Trimon <laughs> or anyone like that. He's um, more relatable than the creatures from the dungeon dimensions. 
in fact, it's interesting uh, getting this, like, pyramids essentially being a big critique and Dios being the manifestation of this, of, like, tradition stagnating. And when we done Life Fantastic, I said that Pratchett does a lot of that, and I feel more often than not, it's usually tradition he's critiquing, but in Life Fantastic, it's modernity through Trimon. He has these really new, cutting-edge methods, oh, but they're yes. seen as really cold and callous, you know, mm. um, got almost sort of like like wizardly neoliberalism or something. Um, That's a term I never thought I'd hear anyone say. <laughs> <laughs> but I like it. I like it, too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Patent pending. <laughs> But we've got this this big critique of tradition, but I suppose like, you know, reading it after I've read him critique modernity too, it sort of mollifies that. But I mean, yeah, there are a lot of bits that I know make the deals more complex than just a mustache twirling villain. Like there's a great bit with, um, uh, he, the contrast with Kumi where, um, Dios is, uh, like Kumi's basically, you know, when, when all the priests are kind of confused what to do when the gods are there and he stands up and he sees that Dios is confused and he sees this sort of power vacuum and he's like oh we should do sacrifices <laughs> and they're like oh really should we and he says yeah and he kind of it's basically saying like he doesn't really he's just making it up as he goes along so long as he kind of stands and be authoritative yeah. they'll listen to him yeah. so he's like you know he's even though he's a priest he's power shorn of belief like he, he doesn't really care what the belief is what he's saying so long as it'll get him power whereas like Dios is, uh, you know, almost the opposite. Like that part when he's talking about when actually what that bit about him, them sacrificing the the oxen or whatever it is that belongs to those two peasants, and Tepic alludes to him like, "Oh, you'll probably eat that meat," and he gets really insulted by the thought that he would gain from any of the ritual or the you know traditions of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And you believe him, you know, uh, and like yeah, he isn't kind of doing any of it for gain. And that like bit where he's almost you know near tears, saying to all the like you know. All the mummies and past kings like what would we be without this we'd just be another river kingdom we just you know mm. the kind of the sands of time would have just uh, blown over us and you know washed us away and like I'm the only one who's keeping us you know actually something unique um, being actually something unique uh, and it's yeah it's, it's much more sympathetic and there's that bit uh, there's a great bit when you go from when the all their past dead kings sort of out him as being 7,000 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he talks about how, you know, breaking infinity up into little bits to make it manageable. Yeah. And then you, you cut, so to speak, to Tepic climbing the Great Pyramid. And Tepic talks about how the only way you can do it is to break it up into really small bits and just look at the wall of the pyramid rather than look up or look down and just look at what you're doing at that time. And you see that, you know, Dios's point of view and Tepic's aren't that, you know, like, uh, yes, kind, of, yeah, yeah. kind of similarities between them. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I think it like all that, that kind of stuff makes him, uh, really complex. And the fact that the end of it is a, is a bootstrap paradox where it's like, yeah, they kind of rid the kingdom of, uh, Dios's influence going into the future, but he's still kind of responsible for everything that's happened until then. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a kind of like, uh, how would you put it, like a back to the future split timelines thing where it's like, you go back and make the present better through altering the past. Like he goes back and the past and makes it the same way it ever was. Yeah. But you know, that will eventually so lead us a, to something good. A circle of yeah, vicious circle. Well not yeah. vicious, but yeah. Yeah, well kind of a yeah, just a complete uh, loop. Um and there's a lot of nice bits in it throughout about uh other characters, I think like reflecting back on the influence their forebears have had on them in a way that makes you realise like that uh, the effect of this I suppose Stagnation, stagnation of time, or the effect that our traditions and our kind of 
our family history has on us. Like it isn't just like it's the austere kind of enforcing this on everyone. It's something they all feel. Like Tracy talks about her grandmother posing for that book, um, and she was the one who gave her the bangles, and she feels so attached yeah. to the bangles. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you've got Taclosp. Ta- ta- Taclosp. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, and his his two sons, you know, in their relationship, but also he thinks back to his father and how his father was also a pyramid builder, and he didn't even get like a good burial tomb, you know, when he got buried, and how it's like his kind of motivating factor to. Mm. He says he'll build the the Great Pyramid. So he'll be famous and he'll be kind of, you know, I suppose he'll be better off than his father was. And you have people like Chitter and Arthur in the Assassin's Guild going at their father's footsteps. Like Chitter goes into commerce uh, and Arthur, like you find out, you know, he comes there and he's really shy and kind of like uh, bullied. But then you find out he's the son of one of the best ever assassins. And by the end of it, it's kind of clear that he's this amazing assassin and he's going to be, I think it says he's staying on for like postgraduate work. Mm-hmm. Was um, he the one who is the the one we act, that we actually see um, attempting to sacrifice? That's a him. Goat. Yeah, is, yeah, is that's him? Him. yeah. Sorry, I couldn't remember. And they're but like, no, yeah. saying your prayers before yeah. bedtime. <laughs> but that's, that's that was that's a lovely kind of outside look at, at a similar topic from mm-hmm. Tepic's point of view, and then Tepic responds with you know kind of the really just kind of logical way of you know like look, you know he he might come, he might not come. Yeah, or, yeah. You know, just stop it <laughs> yeah and then he has he has to think about his own thing when he talks exactly, about like his yeah. his how his dad makes the sunrise and he's like ah oh, <laughs> what does he do i've never seen him do anything to make the sunrise oh no i love the reaction when arthur finds out that his father is a god so, <laughs> yeah. so how do you pray to your god well normally it's just talking to him it's kind of in the room what <laughs> yeah my dad's a god yeah. <laughs> i guess praise him exactly <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I found that quite funny. Just the the casual, you know, uh, godlike tendencies that just happen to show, like corn sprouting yeah, from the yeah. ground. Yeah, I never, I never noticed that pun until the very end, though. Like, you know, I, I never kind of thought, like, oh, he's a god, so he's making stuff grow, but it's also the grass growing under his feet yeah, exactly. until I actually came out and said it, and I was like, ah, that's pretty good, actually. You know, fresh in his puns. Yeah, that's an excellent one. Yeah, and then right then making the sun rise and then i like that what was what then you know when when the god the first thing you're described is when when the gods actually appear the giant dung beetle making the sun rise yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. wait a minute so great. somebody else is making the, the priest doing the david yeah, the coleman-esque ritual. commentary on all the gods fighting for the um fighting oh, for the sun. Yeah. yeah i knew you would have liked that actually. <laughs> i really like that <laughs> Sorry, thought I came over right there. <laughs> that was excellent. Mm-hmm. Most excellent. Oh, we were in God's Stitching. Noticed a bit, um, Rose, when uh, Tepic is thinking about a Phoebean religion, which is obviously based on Greek religion, and God's becoming animals to seduce women. And he looks at Tracy and the tortoise, and he's trying to see if that's a god trying to seduce her. Yes. Which foreshadows small gods, where uh, Om is in the body of a tortoise. I have that in a bookmark. Yeah. I need to read small gods. Oh, it's it's really good, it and is. it's kind of it's it's very much a thematic follow-on from from pyramids. Oh, maybe so. I should make that my next one then. Hmm. Um, while we're in gods, I I'm sorry if this is an oversight of mine, too, but did they ever come out and say when all the the gods of the Jelly Baby manifest themselves in this, you know, like? Uh, quantum kind of little like uh, I suppose bubble they they exist in. Mm-hmm. Did they ever say why they're so dumb? Like <laughs> they're like kind of like he does say how they treat humans the way humans to treat insects, but they just seem to have you know like like they're just can't talk and go around having really in- infantile fun. 
Like, uh... Yeah, no, I guess they don't. The only thing they really say is, well, this is what people believe is true. So I guess yeah, people yeah, have a really that, poor perception. Yeah, that gods. that gods are just really kind of yeah, elemental. And, smiting. Yeah, well, it is, it is. It's certainly true of like you know ancient religions. I find it really interesting that you know we have uh, with like most of the major religions now are built around this idea of a loving god in some sort of way. You know, mm. um, but in ancient times the gods were much more like volatile. It's like oh, like in Greece you have Zeus as the head god, that they, like you know the main one they worship. But it's Prometheus who gave us life and gave us fire, and you know. But Zeus hates him, so it just gives you like the idea of how harsher life must have seemed back then. So it must have really seemed like, oh, the gods are just these awful, you know, volatile, angry people who can't, yeah, you know, who just um, couldn't care less about us. Really bad tempers. <laughs> yeah. Fighting over needless things. It was a uh, actually. It was, it, I love reading. Uh, these kind of books with kind of adaptations of gods in them, mm-hmm. obviously, because you know I wrote a thesis on American gods. But oh, yeah. um, it was it, it was it's just such it, he has just such a great comedic way of doing it, and it's it's a much more uh, it's a much more easy way to read it, I think. And obviously for the disc world, it, it's kind of makes a lot more sense. Whereas you know when you you come out of American gods, just like all the gods are living in the gutter in the <laughs> modern day, and it's just really kind of you know, but it's the same principle. It's it's belief. Mm-hmm. that keeps them going um but yeah gods are fun to play with yeah in yeah it's, it's a um it's just such a it's, it's a big concept to have it know, is have yeah. fun with it is um i did i did like what he did with all the time and the pyramids just draining all the time out of the world as well it's a good one mm-hmm. yeah that was apparently like a pretty pseudo scientific theory just like uh you you put a, a dull razor in the middle of a pyramid and it would sharpen again oh, but I, I don't think it was really based on you know it, it's been debunked quite a bit but uh, it was just one of these things where I think it was almost like this guy posited it and because no one would have ever think to you know deprove that or test yeah. it it gained a bit of traction because it isn't the kind of thing <laughs> you can just yeah. instantly say no that's you know that's that's not true uh-huh. you have to go over to Egypt and you know like yeah. the razor blade in the pyramid oh wow <laughs> that, that would be an expensive experiment <laughs> Um, although it, it, it a little bit more uh, feasible, you know, the, the time the time theory than a Stargate theory, which is that the pyramids were landed on Earth by aliens. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I like I prefer the uh, Futurama theory, which is that um, aliens came to Earth to see how to build pyramids. Bender <laughs> <laughs> oh, gets a pyramid. It's not really a pyramid; it's just a big statue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty Sorry. big. <laughs> that isn't too big. I don't know if people remember me or the statue. <laughs> Build it again. So sidetracked right now. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I'm absolutely. Really sorry, I, was, um, I think I started. Yeah, we're, we're hitting about an hour, so I suppose we should we should we should wind down. Uh, one more one more thing that jumped out at me uh, was that this is the second book in a row where we have. A guy who's set up as the king but doesn't want to be the king and leave someone unexpected in charge. Shirking off your responsibility. Yeah, yeah. How dare they? And then in Guards, Guards, we'll have something similar with Carrot, who almost everyone knows is <laughs> meant to be the king but never. Yeah, it's, we'll get a three books in a row. Um, yeah. Oh, like that's strange. Yeah, you're right, actually. It's yeah. Guards, Guards next. Yes. Right it after, is. so yeah. it is three exactly in a row. 
Pratchett must have had some strong opinions that year. Yeah, evidently on, on on Kings. Um, like yeah. I, I've said it before, that it's the strength and the weakness <laughs> of his that he kind of will revisit ideas. Yeah. Um, but I think in this case, it's a big strength because I mean the difference between Varence and Tom John in this and Tepic and Tracy and our uh, Varence and Tom John were sisters and Tepic and Tracy and pyramids. It's a much it's a kind of different scenario and we see it from a different view. You know, what like with Tepic, we actually see him kind of try out the role of king, as it were, yeah. or we never really saw that with. Um, with uh, Tom John, Tom John. Um, and it kind of makes for interesting uh, contrast. Whereas in this book, it's like the you know Tepic is expected to be king and behave like a king, essentially. You know, in a very uh, how would you put it um, symbolic, symbolically heavy uh, way that like doesn't really matter what he does. You know, he's expected to do that by essentially the book's antagonists. Whereas in Weird Sisters, I'm sorry, I'm spoiling the Weird Sisters here for you, but it's kind of the protagonists and almost the readers, I suppose, who expect Tom John to do that. Like the whole thing's built around, oh yeah, and I'll make him king and it'll sort out. And then when he, you know, is, it looks like he will be king at the end, Granny actually makes some point about like the symbolism of something being more important than the real thing. And like, it doesn't really matter what he says. Yeah. So it's interesting to flip the perspective like that. Oh, wow, it is actually. Hmm. I'd actually like to go back and find that quote from Granny Weatherwax. Uh, read the last section again in comparison to this. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's something like, um, yeah, it's, it's some definition of uh, symbolic being like the real thing, but only more important or something like that. Yeah, whereas is... in this you have all of these lost in translation moments yeah. of where one thing is said. And then, I wasn't even clear on this, Dios translating to the servants, did that just mean... Like, they would have been speaking the same language. Yeah, I think it's just that, like, he's done such a job of building up the myth of the king as someone untouchable. Like, you have the bit later when Tepic shakes your man's hand and he has to get cut off. Oh, God. That, like, yeah, the, the, the servants don't even comprehend that they would understand what the king is saying, you know. And probably, possibly as well, from behind the mask. So maybe yeah, he was, yeah, maybe well, he was exactly. addressing. Mm-hmm. No, he's, oh, yeah. he's complete. he has built it up. And it's a system, it's a system that he's built up where the king is basically just a figurehead and he's on a, like this completely different plane for a reason so mm-hmm. he can control everything else um so yeah but that would be in a whole other language and like you know in in i suppose correlating to the real world in ancient egypt that was what it was kind of seen as as well yeah, yeah. it's like like you just didn't interact with people in a different class mm. especially one that was like way above you mm-hmm. it was like no get on your feet or get on your knees or just walk away or just Oh God! Don't even go there. So yeah, it would be like speaking yeah. a different language, and I suppose translating would be kind of you know necessary, especially if you're going to get your hand cut off, mm-hmm. or and then and somebody else didn't know you were going to get your hand cut off except <laughs> you. <laughs> um, I I would love to read like a prequel novella, just time skipping from when Dios first means cuffed, and him just setting up these various traditions of the kingdom, like because presumably he couldn't do the same really. Uh, you know ritual and tradition heavy stuff at the start when there is no ritual and tradition mm-hmm. and if Cuff's just some bloke who's wandered in from you know the uh, uh, from the desert with his family he can't convince his family they can't understand him you know there's obviously something he's built up for all his hatred of change that he has slowly built it up over time and I think it'll be really fun just to see a few scenes that show that being developed like his kind of grip on power and his idea of the traditions uh, being developed, I really love that bit with um, I I, I really like anything that just um, turns uh, 
I suppose the tradition or people's perception of an unknowable past on its head. Like I love that bit when he has the dream about Cuffed and how he isn't this, you know, really mighty figure. He's just some charlatan who ran in from the, you know, from the desert. Yeah. Uh, it's really good. Yeah. I like that as well. Yeah. I liked it too. It was good. Um, so before we wrap up our main analysis, is there anything else that jumped out to you guys that you? Um, no. I think there's a little bit that I'm going to want to talk about when we get to the list making. But other than that, I'm good. Okay. Would you like to see any of these characters crop up again? I, I just alluded to like seeing a Dios prequel, but other than that. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind the novella idea you you had. I wouldn't mind see, like seeing a little more into the backstory of mm-hmm. him and Cuffed and you know the actual kind of carving out of the land of the gem. Yeah, that would be very interesting. Um, but apart from that, no, I can't really think of anyone else I can see showing up. Oh, maybe Cheddar. Does he turn up? No, but he really seems like he would. Like yeah. you know, he he definitely Commerce seems like he, yeah, he just pop up in the background of one of the watch novels as a you know a, a smuggler, mm. um, but he doesn't. Uh, Coming out yeah. of Dibbler's grand nephew or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, like it would have been nice to see. Uh, I, I think it would have been funny to see um, Tracy alluded to again, like like just the jelly baby under under her rule a few years down the line. It would be nice to see see uh, Tepic. I I don't know if like I think most people's story is told in the it's just great strength of the book it's told entirely in the book you know there's kind of not much more you can do but I wouldn't mind seeing a few of the characters crop up in other Discworld books I kind of would have liked to see a little bit more of the older King Tepic yeah Lucid because he suddenly became such a great character when he died yeah and he was dead for most of the book but it was really nice to see particularly because these conversations he had had when you know the goodbye scene that he had with um, Tepic yeah (laughs) it's like no father I've been away before I'm 12 now you've forgotten my birthday do you not remember last year when you bought me a warming pan and the guy's like bought you a a warming (laughs) how how singular he says like it would have been nice it's a nice warming pan (laughs) yes I would have liked to see it just shows as well the other plane that they got him on you know it's all part of it I was like no just not knowing what's going on around you most of the time <laughs> yeah, I would have. I would have liked to see more of him. Yeah, and actually, now that I think about it, when I say lucid, he was lucid for most of the novel. He made complete sense and everything, but he couldn't interact with anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's what I want to see. Actually, yeah, is regular King Tepicamon, the whatever. Twenty <laughs> seventh, I think. I, I can't remember. Maybe, yeah. but just having chats yeah. with people and being able to converse the way that he really wasn't. Yeah. Oh yeah, that would be a nice one. Yeah. I don't know how you'd do it though. I guess you'd have. Oh my god, a Death's Domain novel. Oh. <laughs> the dead characters that wander off across the desert mm. and you never know what's happened to them. I'd love... Oh gosh, that would be... There's a lot of material there, I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh. absolutely there is. I just invented that, but it's never going to happen. Well, <laughs> no, any fanfic writers listening here? <laughs> well, any good ones? Um, yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't, in the course of synopsis, I alluded to it up air. My the, the scene with the Sphinx is one of my like favorite scenes in this girl. Like I think it's just, it's absolutely hilarious the oh. the way he deconstructs the riddle. Like and the, just that that line uh, uh, when Tepic is kind of uh, outlining their new, much more specific version of the and precise version of the riddle, and the, the Sphinx chimes in, barring any accidents. <laughs> said the Sphinx, pathetically eager to show it was making a contribution. It's just like. 
it's again that like fantastic on the mundane thing. He tur- like within a few pages, he's turned this terrifying monster, this you know huge mythological figure, and this really like pathetic sort of small-minded, almost like bureaucrat. Um, but I think it, it, it as well like it captures so many of the great things that are great about this book. Like you have the uh, you have the sort of quantum belief being made reality element when he talks about the Sphinx patrolling the borders, and they just didn't you know they uh, didn't say what border, and it's like it's patrolling the kind of spiritual borders to the jelly baby mm-hmm. you've got the kind of uh deconstruction of tradition element of this sphinx using this riddle which um for anyone who, who didn't know it's from uh oedipus from the myth of oedipus to uh ironically a greek thing rather than a um <laughs> yeah, yeah rather than an uh, egyptian one with the sphinx is terrifying thebes and it would stand at crossroads and kill any man who tried to enter unless he could solve this riddle that was the riddle um, Oedipus gets right and I think the Sphinx just hurls itself off a cliff or something yeah. but you know you have Tepic pulling that like you know this thing that the Sphinx has been using for time immemorial apart and showing that when you hold it up to logic it really doesn't work all that well yeah. mm-hmm. um, and you just have the humour it's just brilliant like this stuff what do you think what What do you think <laughs> Sphinx what said? was the actual riddle for Oedipus and it was like what has three legs in the morning two legs in the evening uh, four or... legs in the morning um Two legs in the af- afternoon and three legs in the evening. Yeah. Oh, it's like a man with a, yeah. a baby. A, a man. It's, uh, um, but really, when you think about it, babies only crawl for such an amount of time. So really, you're talking about like until 20 past nine in the morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how, how slowly does time move in the situation? Um, <laughs> Probably the same as in the jail. There's, yeah. there's wonderfully like a disturbing variant. And have you ever played Batman Arkham Asylum? No. There's throughout it you can kind of collect these uh, like tapes that play the the villains in the asylum talking to like psychiatrists and psychologists mm. and the Riddler asked that riddle and the psychologist answers oh like a man and she goes through you know explains that and he goes no it's a baby uh, if he wants it he goes like you know when it's born it crawls on all fours but then if you break both its uh, arms it can only use its legs but if you give it a cane it can get about on three legs and she says that's horrible how can you say that and he goes oh easy it's not my baby (laughs) this is wonderful Um, but yeah I I love that bit and I think it like it captures everything like that's you know almost everything that's good about this book Um, so there remains for us now to make our small list before we move on to our greater list so for our our, li- our mini list um, we, we've decided to go a bit more esoteric and a bit more creative like we did with the last one and we're going with the top 5 uh, Discworld prequels we'd like to see um, so Ashley, do you want to tell us what number 5 would be? Uh, it was my only contribution as I have the least knowledge of the Discworld um, which as Colin mentioned before it's, it's a nice concept but I suppose wouldn't really be like book material well you never know um i think a prequel of the great atuan and the elephants um we'd finally figure out why the great yes this is this is this is the the boring issue we need to find out why (laughs) one of the elephants has the great prefix tafan that the arrogant the presumptuous tafan i mean we know that the great atuan is great yeah yeah obviously giant turtle it's it's the biggest one but But like the elephants you know one of them just uh, gives themselves these gets these notions above the rest mm. what do Jerakeen and Chabal and Beralia think of Tafan's the injustice of it all the injustice I want to know the world needs to know <laughs> you probably want to know too <laughs> well now you definitely should yes 
But number four is something I've also alluded to wanting to know about in this podcast. And it was a prequel on Dios um, as uh, he kind of put together the kingdom of the Jelly Baby and built those traditions up from the stage where he would be dealing with, uh, I suppose, like camel traders who are fresh out of the desert and all know one another quite intimately and building them up into this state where they can regard their leader as a god and, you know, uh, I suppose, developing his very you know subtly uh operating power base um yeah i think probably a full book because it would um well you wouldn't really have a protagonist beyond dios but uh, a novella certainly i think it would have some legs in it rose what's her number three number three is one of my favorite characters from one of my favorite books it is the prequel uh the origin story of moist von lipvig who we meet at the start of going postal in a tricky situation having been locked up by veterinary and who is persuaded, quite forcibly, to go straight and help set up the postal system. But before that, we know he got into all sorts of trouble. We know he was a con man, we know he had scams, but we don't really know that much about what they were, and I want to know. Um, I, I've never actually read Going Postal. I've seen some of the Sky adaptations, so I'm really looking forward to getting to it in this uh, in this series. I hope uh, we agree. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I, I quite I, I liked the, the bit of uh, I, I liked it. Well, a bit seems really trash. Quite a lot of making money. I thought I had some some kind of issues, but uh, uh, I remember really liking it for a kind of yeah. You know, well, well, we'll get into you know the, the quality of the, the later ones later. Sure. Uh, but uh, number two uh, would be a prequel on Nanny Og, who, as we all know, had a very adventurous girlhood. Um, if nothing else, you get a lot of supporting characters, most of which she's been amorous with. Uh, Leonard the Quare might crop up, you know? Mm, yeah, That would be great. Uh, you see the painting of the Mona Og. <laughs> Nanny Og sounds like a character I'm really going to like. I definitely think you are. <laughs> and if you don't, I may have to reassess our friendship. Oh, don't worry. I'm probably going to like her. <laughs> okay, uh, number one, Rose. What's our number one? Our number one is the Patrician Veterinary how he became patrician. We haven't got a lot of backstory for him yet. Uh, he showed up as a footnote in, was it the last one? Uh, no, no. The well, he shows last? up properly in Sorcery. like on, But in, in oh, Weird Sisters, yeah. like he's kind of... The character we come to know as him is explained in a footnote and how he operates the city, which which I just found really interesting. Yeah. But yeah, and then he shows up in Guards Guards and he seems really well established. Like I've already begun rereading Guards Guards and the bit where he meets the head of the Thieves Guild, like, he has him so, you know, well-managed, and the, the Thieves Guild president is obviously in such awe and fear of him that, you know, when we meet, I suppose, veterinary proper, like, the veterinaries will know him going on, his power base is established, we see this flashback of him as an assassin mm. in Nightwatch, but what happened in between, you know? And if if this prequel could somehow... Uh, somehow address the issue of the weird fat jellyfish eating patrician in uh, in <laughs> Color of Magic who uh, Pratchett has said is the same man but one's written by a worse writer then all the better uh, I think I, I, I fan wanked around that one when, when, on our Color of Magic podcast oh, so wow. if you know if the prequel could address that it would be really interesting mm, that's yeah. true uh, so those are ours uh, if, if you've got another anything else in mind that you'd like to see as a Discworld prequel uh, it's undoubtedly uh, very doubtful we ever will see any of these and anything beyond fan fiction and probably for the best that we don't uh, to be honest I, I wouldn't like them just to you know give the series to someone else uh, but it's interesting to kind of spitball these ideas so if you do have any ideas just let us know on our Facebook and Twitter 
Um, but now, all that remains for us to do is to rank pyramids in our pantheon of the greatest Discworld books in the entire world da, ever. Da, da, da. Or our favourite Discworld books as we've read them so far in this reread series. Mm-hmm. So currently, I believe it stands, and I'm going on memory here, is Colour of Magic is it's uh, in ascending order. So from bottom to top, Colour of Magic, Sorcery, Equal Rights, Life Fantastic, Weird Sisters and Mort at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, you don't have a say in this because you're just a guest. <laughs> <laughs> you're very much second class fine. citizen here I understand completely um, I also ha- I'm not widely versed in Pratchett hey, you're taking it a lot better than Steve did oh. really yeah. well Steve has read more books than I have <laughs> I know that I'm only an amateur at this stage but I, I plan to get better and have more opinions on things he, he tried to assert his rights but it was like yeah, it was like Dios and Tepic you know he was just he was saying these things and we're like oh yeah and then just interpreting some other way mm-hmm. um, that's that's the power relation between hosts and guests on the show right okay uh, well I'm I will be a lot more lenient because I, I know I don't know that yeah. much well but I'm, I'm just curious you said you read Hogfather Color Magic and this um, so like out of those three just for yourself where, where would you rank this I think I preferred this mm-hmm. definitely to Color of Magic and Hogfather um, Morse, I think I might have liked oh, a little yeah, sure. bit more than this. Yeah. Um, just because the story just ran with me a lot better. Um, not that this, this is still a great book. It's actually really hard to pick one over the other, but I think I flew through Morse and this was just kind of, I, it's like, I kind of didn't really want it to end. I think I'd like take breaks between books. Yeah. Like the four different books and I was just like, oh yeah, maybe I'll just save that mm-hmm. for another day or, you know, maybe I'll just won't. I keep reading. Um, so it's actually, it's, that's very a really tough ask because I haven't read as many of his books as you guys have. So I know that there's so many out there that are probably just yeah. as good and better. So like, I'm probably going to go with Mort and Pyramids kind of slightly more Mort, but also like not trying to, you know, shut this down because I love this book. Mm-hmm. It was a really great book. Okay. Well, that's funnily enough. I mean, that's, I think gonna be i don't i don't know about your rose but i think that's gonna be our our discussion here because to me this is, is at the very least number two like it's you know <laughs> like and i t- i think it, i think it's number one i think i i really love mort um and uh i, I found mort much more moving in places like I, I spoke when we talked about that about the you know uh steve talked really eloquently about how it depicts the, the loneliness of death and just the, the bits with mort and his father and mm-hmm. um i really like but just uh this, this first of all, I think it's structured much better. Uh, as we alluded to earlier, Mort has that really rushed, almost Dave say Machina type ending. This mm-hmm. has an amazing ending, like like the, mm-hmm. the the you know that like actually literalizes a metaphor with Tepic standing on the shoulders of his ancestors to cap the pyramid. <laughs> you know, in a way that just resounds with the themes of the books is uh-huh. kind of visually stunning when you picture it, uh, and it's just really dramatic as well. And then you have the with. Dios, you know, being dropped back in time and the bootstrap paradox is just brilliant. I think this is like, you know, perfectly structured. I said the only kind of like blotness is maybe we don't see enough of kind of Tracy flourishing outside of the jelly baby to make Tepic's initial decision to leave her in charge mm. seem kind of questionable and selfish. But, you know, even then we do see, we see that little bit of how she's going to be that, you know, uh, how she's going to be as a ruler. That just seems uh, really, really promising and really funny. I said it made me kind of wish that we would see the jelly baby a couple of years down the line and how it's getting on under her uh touched on in another book but um i just yeah the concepts in this are brilliant like the yeah. whole you know like the uh the t- tradition and time working and um 
like I have this real like sense of wonder about ancient history like that bit in Mort when they're going uh, Isabel talks about going through the, the stacks and seeing all the people whose names when she gets down oh, yeah. deep enough it's like Og and Og and he goes but what was behind that you know you're just like oh wow what was behind that like the bit when they get to the what Dios's pyramid and they're like it's the forest it's 7,000 years old and like you know I, I remember like almost trembling on a dream I'm like oh wow the very beginning you know uh, just yeah like it just brought me that kind of like just sense of wonder about the the time in it um, it's, actually it's, no that was I, I really liked seeing that after having read this mm-hmm. it's like you know you get you get like the symbolism and you get the gods you get you know the the actual like physical kind of you know cultural awe and wonder that these the, of the belief that these people have yeah. and then you have backstage in death's domain mm-hmm. and you have the books and the ledgers and oh. you know all these people and it's just a really nice it was a really nice contrast for me you know going from from pyramids to morse yeah um but no i think um, i'd agree with you with the story like, i just it was a lot more moving in places um but no i, I really liked the contrast from the two books yeah and I, I think there's something in it that, um, like, with, with Pyramids, he sort of revisits the kind of idea overall with small gods. Uh, but, like, we were talking about this book, it's so self-contained, like, you know, he kind of just about finishes off, like, all the, the arcs of the, you know, any major or minor characters absolutely perfectly. Uh, with with Morty doesn't, and I certainly wouldn't want him to, because we get, like, Reaper Man and Hulkvater and Teeth Time and all, which are amazing. But I feel like it says something that, like, the kind of whole idea of exploring death isn't done in in Mort. You know what I mean? Like like within within that book itself, it isn't as kind of dealt with as thoroughly and as kind of you know just um, I know as completely as all the issues he sets up in pyramids. It's like you know he kind of uh, completely um, just yeah deals with them in a way that's just like utterly wonderful. Leaves you wanting more, but knowing that you don't need any more. You know. Um, so what do you think? Well, from the goodbye that I mentioned earlier, the goodbye scene with um, where Tepic is going off to Ankhmore Pork mm-hmm. and the father is... Um, oh, this is the first time I've been away from home. No, it's not. <laughs> I couldn't help reading that because we discussed the goodbye scene in Mort oh, so yeah. much. I couldn't help that I started reading it as like an inverse to Mort in some ways. Like there's actually a lot of parallels in terms of... Oh, where do I have this? In terms of, so there's the goodbye scene, there's this young man who's taking on this new role and there's all these new powers floating around and there's these supernatural elements. Mm-hmm. There's him learning the business of being an assassin and then learning the business of being a king. And they both have this archetype of these young men who have issues fitting the mould. As in, in in Pyramids, you have Tepic who doesn't want to just, you know, sacrifice everything and build pyramids for everything. Mm-hmm. And in Mort, you have this issue of um, he doesn't want to just learn the way death does it yeah, indiscriminately. Yeah. They both have this authority issue. <laughs> and, and they both sort of have a, a figure of like a, a rigid tradition in death and Dios. Yeah. And they both have a stage where they almost like just give up and embrace it. Like when Tepic says, yeah, just build the biggest pyramids ever and Mort starts doing death's job and coming like, I hadn't mm. thought of any of this, but it's now all like, it all makes so much sense that you're no, saying. Yeah, it. yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting point. Which I quite enjoyed because from the beginning then I was like, well, it's going to come down to those two. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. definitely going to be Mort versus pyramids, pyramids versus Mort. And while I say all that, I think what really, what really decided it for me mm-hmm. is like I said, I've been doing all these bookmarks and the amount of smiley faces and winky faces on my phone just for how tremendous the jokes are and how amazingly structured 
the jokes, the characters, the plot, everything, the references, everything in yeah. Pyramids is, I would put Pyramids over Mort. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, uh, we're, we're very much in agreement then. Mm. Um, in my head, I've got a visual from our imagined Discworld Super Smash Brothers style game of, you <laughs> right. know, Mort and Tepic facing off and Tepic gets the, gets the floating glowing special. I would and play just that game. Drop, drops a giant pyramid <laughs> on Mort's head. Oh, God. Oh, it's, wow. Um, so, oh, uh, wow, okay. Um, great. Uh, if, if you disagree with us, by all means, Steve, get on with us. <laughs> but, uh, start start a, a, a respectful uh, intellectual debate, a rigorous intellectual debate, rather than swinging hooks or shouting abuse. Mm. But um, yeah, that's it as it stands. Uh, Pyramids is our new number one. Next time, we will be addressing guards, guards. But uh, till then, um, thanks so much for listening. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye.